The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Dr. Seuss said, Be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. That's his advice on the topic of identity. Uh, my advice to you is on a sort of an unimportant topic. We'll just we'll, we'll leave it on the topic of sports. It is Super Bowl Sunday. I have a particular view about being a fan of uh, of sports teams. I'll share that view with you now. I'll try to convince you of it. Basically, my rule is that you must either be from the city of the team that you you root for, or you've lived in that city a decent amount of time. For me, that's five years. If you've lived somewhere for five years, you're potentially eligible to root for that team. Um, and, and then, so you see God's providence and in, in, in he places you in the team that you should root for in that city. I don't know, my boys probably don't disagree with this. I know they disagree with this, but I just think this is the way it is. So remember this as you're rooting for your team in the Super Bowl today. Being a fan means you're committed to your team in good times and bad. So I'm from the Houston area. Therefore, naturally, by God's grace and providence, I am an Astros fan, among other Houston teams. And that means I have to be able to celebrate both the 2017 World Series and endure the pain of this recent cheating scandal. Because I'm an Astros fan. It's who I am, through and through. You might say it's kind of part of my identity down the the list. So that's an unimportant illustration. Now let's think of an important one. Think of the Apostle Peter as he walked with Jesus for three years. He learned from him. He loved him. He was committed to him. Peter once said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death in Luke 22. And Jesus followed that up by saying, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Deny three times that you know me. And you know that's exactly what happened. Peter had an identity crisis when Jesus was taken in and questioned by the Jewish leaders. And when asked if he was with Jesus at that moment in time, he denied it three times. As you know, there's points in our lives that, like this, some would call them defining moments, but when all the kind of gray areas and shadows that sometimes we can lurk in disappear, and we just have to come clean. We have to come clean with who we are. We have to come clean of what we will stand for and who we will stand with. And one of those moments has been building now for weeks in our study of the book of Esther, and it has finally come. King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes in Greek, chose Esther, a young Jewish orphan who was raised by her uncle Mordecai, from all the women in his kingdom to be his queen. But Esther has a secret. She's Jewish. She's part of the covenant people of God. Mordecai has instructed her to to keep that identity concealed, and it seems that she has some five years into the story. But the story is now progressing to the point where that is no longer going to be an option, or, or is it? Because of a conflict between Haman, who is the newest and kind of highest official in the king, and Mordecai, who is who is Jewish, Mordecai would not bow to to Haman 
Now the people of God in the kingdom of Ahasuerus have all been condemned to die through an irrevocable edict. So great mourning and lamenting have spread throughout the land, and and Mordecai comes to his niece now in this part of our story with a request to risk her life for her people. The question that the, the book kind of points back to us is, though, is are they really her people? Where does her allegiance truly lie? Deep down, where is her true identity? These are the questions that Esther 4 is going to answer for us, but then also ask of us. So who are we, really? We have to grapple with these questions, don't we, as we read God's Word. When all the gray areas are removed around us, and we're left with a black and white choice, what will we choose? What actions in our lives right now would point back to our true identity. Someone would say, well, this clearly points to who you are. Do outsiders, for example, know, if you're a Christian here this morning, that you're a believer? Or would they be surprised to learn, oh, you're a Christian, I didn't, I didn't know that. It's probably more accurate to say that Esther has a kind of a revealing moment, more than just a defining moment in our text. A moment that just reveals who she really is. What will be revealed about you and about me when that moment comes to us? I think we'll see that even though our identity may be observed outwardly, people will see things about us by what we do. It is actually rooted within us. Who we are dictates what we do, what we value, what we'll risk, and how we'll live. And so this is the main point of the sermon this morning in Esther chapter 4. Our treasure defines our identity. Your treasure defines your identity. And I want to walk through this passage with you by just asking two questions. They're listed there in your bulletin if you want to take notes there. Two questions. Number one, who will you identify with? Number one, who will you identify with? And secondly, who identifies with you? Who identifies with you? And implied in both of those questions is that nagging question of, well, who am I? What do I treasure above everything else? And what are the actions in my life that that point back to my greatest love, my identity? And so let's look at God's word to see how this is fleshed out in Esther's story. First question we want to consider this morning is, who do you identify with? In good times and bad times, we just need to follow our actions, don't we, to find our, our treasure to find where our heart truly is. And ultimately that points to our identity, who we are. And it's true with Mordecai. We, we begin chapter four with a look at his response to Haman's edict with the king's authority, which was simply to annihilate the Jews in the kingdom. Chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. All of this because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to one of the king's high-ranking officials. Haman was an enemy of God's people, if you remember, an Agagite. 
And he was thirsty for recognition and honor from, from his subjects. But clearly his hatred for the Jewish people is exposed here when someone wouldn't bow to him. And so he writes a law of genocide. And the result of this terrible news there in verse 3 is mourning with fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Mordecai tears his clothes and, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, which is a common gesture that we don't see today, but a gesture in the, in the Old Testament for, for mourning and for great distress. And this phrase, fasting, weeping, and lamenting, uh, is a familiar phrase from another Old Testament passage from Joel chapter 2. It's like an echo from what Joe, Joel was saying in Joel chapter 2 shows up here in Mordecai's response and the people's response. In Joel 2, there's another threat of impending judgment from the Lord. And so we read there, uh, you don't have to turn there, just listen, Joel 2 verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. So you see there's a, there's a almost direct quote there from Joel 2. And then if you continue to read in Joel 2, verse 15, you hear, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, and he goes on. And so if you put that echo of Joel 2 into what's happening in Esther 4, it seems like the author wants us to, to make this connection and see Haman's plot to kill the Jews as an actual opportunity for the Jews who are in exile, remember, because of their sin, to repent and to call upon the Lord. To see even this, this act against them ultimately as an opportunity to turn away and to put their trust in God. And not just with outward actions of mourning and fasting and tearing their clothes, but from the heart, rending their heart. So it's a call for true repentance, calling out to the God of mercy who is gracious and abounding in steadfast love. It seems to be what Mordecai is, is doing. And he intentionally goes, you'll notice, in this sort of state of mourning to the king's gate, knowing that he couldn't enter because of the his sackcloth that he had on, but, but perhaps so that the, the king's servants would see him and they would go and alert Esther of what was happening. Something's wrong and that's exactly what happened. So verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Just get this picture. You see God's people all over the the kingdom. Verse 3, every province. So remember, this kingdom would stretch from India to Ethiopia. They're all united in fasting and suffering because of this edict. They're all going to die, be annihilated on the same day. But then we're reminded just how separated Esther is from her people in verse 4. She doesn't understand why Mordecai is mourning in sackcloth. And so she has one of her servants send him new clothes. Just, just imagine kind of that, that response and what Mordecai sort of thought about that. Imagine, you know, going to a funeral with a friend and just seeing someone dressed in black and saying, Oh, no, no, no. 
Let me give you some more clothes that are, that are brighter and more cheerful. You need to cheer up. It's like, no, I'm at a funeral. Someone's died. And Mordecai wouldn't accept the clothes. She sends a messenger to investigate further. So verse 5. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. To remember that that Haman had offered to pay the king literally tons of silver if he would just sign this edict to destroy the Jews and Hazarus is just kind of a sleepy king and he just, you just kind of get this picture of him, you know, signing and giving over his signet ring without even thinking much about it. Now Mordecai's plan that we see that he wants to, how he's going to respond to this is, is, is revealed. He wants Esther to go to the king and plead for her people. To use her position with the king to intercede for her kindred, to, to level her, her, her leverage, her position in the Persian kingdom for the kingdom of God. All the details are, are laid out. He gives Hathak a copy of the edict just to provide proof. He's not making this up. People are going to die. So how would Esther respond to this request? Well, verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. Now, before you kind of jump to conclusions about Esther's response, just think through her situation. She reminds Mordecai, who is an official, right, with the, with the king, something that he surely should have been aware of. She says, all the king's servants and people of all the provinces know this. That if you appear before the king uninvited, the law says you must die. In other words, dear uncle, surely you know that you're asking me to risk my life. So maybe I didn't hear you right, because that's not my favorite option. Secondly, she gives Mordecai a hint about kind of how married life in the palace is going. Like she's not been called to come to the king for 30 days. So that's not a good sign, right? Especially if you're banking on the king, raising his scepter to show mercy. Especially to his queen who would just have broken the law. We don't know if his affections for her have cooled at this point. But we do know she's not the only woman in the king's life. We'll just put it that way. So Mordecai, thank you for your plan, but let's see what other options we have. And listen, we need to say objectively, Esther's not wrong. The odds don't look to be in her favor. Like, when was the last time someone came to you with a plan that required you risking your life and you're just like, I'm in? 
Let's do it. Now, that said, I just want to step back and just observe what I think is an intentional picture of Esther's kind of disconnectedness from the people of God. So she's pictured here as isolated and distant from the rest of God's people. We know why. She's been pretending to be someone that she isn't. Mordecai told her to do that. She's the only character in the book that has two names. It has a a Persian name and a Jewish name. And we said that that's sort of a picture of this internal conflict, perhaps, this identity crisis that she has throughout the book. And I think it's a striking picture for us to consider. You know, we're talking here about more than just missing on, out on some important news that everyone else knew that she's last to hear about. We all know that feeling. We go on vacation or we're sick for a while and we come back to church, or we come back to work and you're like, oh man, all this stuff happened. So-and-so had her baby. So-and-so decided to, to not work here anymore and I've, I'm catching up on all this news. But I want to go beyond that level of connectedness to a deeper place of, of identity. Esther has concealed her identity as one of God's people. And now we begin to see the effects. Not only is she disconnected, but initially uninclined to help, to join this effort because it's going to cost her so much. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? A distance from God's people or the things of God doesn't fuel like risk-taking obedience. So if you're a Christian here this morning, especially if you're a, a member of our church, let me just ask you, how connected are you to the people of God? How connected are you to the people of God? When we're saved, we are baptized spiritually into the universal body of Christ, united with true Christians across the world. We are in Christ. But that universal union in Scripture is given a living, breathing existence, like an application in the local church. So you see Paul writing to the church at Corinth, not just every Christian who's ever lived. In Matthew 18, at the end of the steps of church discipline, Jesus says, if this person doesn't respond, tell it to the church. Well, surely he doesn't mean every Christian in the whole city, every Christian who's ever lived. Now, there's a particular group of people who are together called the local church. God has put us in a body of believers, and each member is vital to the body's function. And so, as a body, we rejoice with those who rejoice. This week, we rejoiced as one of our brothers um, was, was blessed with a new car. We weep with those who weep. This week, it happened with a couple of sisters who were in difficult places with their health and other who was dealing with difficulty in her family. And I just want to throw those out there as kind of just, just, just for you to think through. If those are events are new to you and that doesn't, it's something that doesn't, doesn't, it's not familiar, it's okay. It doesn't mean really anything. You could have just had a a week where you didn't hear what was going on. But if there's a consistent pattern of, of sort of regularly being unaware of what's going on in the life of the church, regularly kind of not feeling the weight of what others are going through, regularly missing out on rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, could it be that we're disconnected? Could it be that we're, we're drifting? Another way to ask it would be just who are your people? Boil it down to that question. Who are your people? Who are the ones that you love and give your time to and pray for? 
And I would just add from our church covenant that you're responsible to care for, to bear their burdens, to exhort, and to encourage. Because I don't think there's anyone else in the Christian's life, perhaps aside from their own immediate family, that ranks higher on that list than the church of Jesus Christ. The one and other commands in the New Testament assume this. They assume the connectedness, the gospel bond that holds people together in love, fellowship, accountability, and care. We call that church membership. It doesn't sound optional when Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we bear one another's burdens if we're not aware of one another's burdens? Because we're disconnected. Those are your people. If you're a Christian, these are your people. I'm part of of an exercise group, um, which you can obviously tell by looking at me. It's really big on community. And I think that's great. I think it's great. I'm pro-exercise groups and I'm pro the fellowship that we have together. Just, Just a warning about that. If I'm more aware of the needs and the prayer requests and the life challenges of the guys that I work out with than I am in my church, that's a problem. If I spend more time with the, the brothers in my, in my workout group than the men and women in my church, that's a, that's a problem. Just insert any group that you like, like a chess club or a, a school group or school friends or work friends. You notice that all those things, the bond that creates those groups is affinity or like stage of, of life or common interest And that's great, but there's nothing supernatural about it. It says nothing about God. It says nothing about Jesus Christ. As opposed to the local church where the bond is the gospel, where you see people from all different races and and backgrounds come together and fellowship in a much deeper way. That says something. That, That raises a question mark to the world around us. Friend, are you drifting from a commitment to God's people? Don't be surprised if you're putting your energies and efforts elsewhere that you feel disconnected from the church. And often the church fails in this. Uh, I know this. We fail in this. We, we imperfectly love people. We, we admit that. But, but if you're in a place that, that feels connected, I would disconnect it. I would encourage you to, to pray about reinvesting. Think of yourself as being a provider, not just a consumer. Someone who's had your needs met in Christ and is now seeking to provide and serve for the others around you. We've been given everything in Christ. And now we're called to serve and give and love and care for and even risk for the people of God. And Esther hadn't seen that yet, but she's about to. And let's just read Mordecai's response to her, kind of her response, beginning in verse 12. And so essentially she's saying, I don't think this is a good idea. Mordecai responds in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so if we're wondering about Esther's initial reply or how Mordecai received it, I think we see here. And he just reminds her. It seems like he warns her. 
because she's separated from the people of God in this way, that safety and security that you have in the palace won't save you. And this helps us to see how Mordecai views this whole thing, doesn't it? He, he sees it as God being at work, behind the scenes. Even in Haman's evil scheme, there's no escaping God's justice. The rich, the poor, royalty, and homeless alike will face a holy God one day. And Mordecai expresses just great faith, doesn't he, in God's providence and deliverance and faithfulness by saying, look, Esther, even if you shrink back from this opportunity, help is going to come from somewhere else. Even though God's name isn't mentioned here, as it is throughout the book, I think it's implied, God's going to take care of his people. In effect, he's saying, Esther, you have a chance to honor God, to honor the Lord by taking a big step of faith here. But if you don't do it, God's still going to do his will. He's still going to work and deliver his people. Just another good reminder for us towards humility, that God doesn't need us. He mercifully chooses to use us for his purposes, but we're not going to thwart God's almighty plans. Mordecai even alludes to Esther's own destruction if she denies her people in this way. You and your father's house will perish Some scholars see this as kind of a veiled threat from Mordecai to like personally do something to Esther if she doesn't take this step. I kind of think it's more of a reminder just of God's sovereign judgment over the matter. And from that, there's no escape. And it's implied that when Mordecai throws out the idea that perhaps God has placed Esther in this situation for such a time as this, that God has been at work this whole time. And of course, this is the underlying theme of the whole book of Esther, God's invisible hand at work when he's not explicitly seen or heard from. Mordecai doesn't guarantee that God's plan is exactly this, but he is modeling a view of the world that the Bible, I think, commends to each of us. Joseph Joseph reflected on his brother's sin against him and treachery against him and said, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To say that God meant it for good means that God is sovereignly ruling over it and has a, a plan through it. Christian friend, despite the difficulties in your life right now that are before you, have you asked this question lately? Well, what might God have me here for? Even though there's a bunch of struggle, a bunch of unanswered questions, perhaps He's brought me to this neighborhood, this dorm, for a particular reason. This office, this care group, this church, going through this pain of cancer, this great trial with my child, this difficult relationship with another church member. What might God be doing in this? What might he be preparing me for? Even a potential merger with another church. If you identify yourself as a Christian, You're identifying yourself with a God who is both sovereign and good. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing is apart from his sovereign design. And he works for the good of his people. So whatever happens, whatever it is, we can say God meant it for good. I wonder if you find yourself in a kind of identity crisis. Maybe even this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not regularly attending church. Not regularly listening to a long sermon from the Bible. 
What do you make of a person who would say yes to a request like this from Mordecai? What do you think about this choice? How do you think through it? What would it take for someone to risk their life for the good of others? The path of self-preservation, honestly, it's the one that we often choose. Least resistance, safety, security, it's right there. When siding with this people of God is going to bring trouble, lots of resistance. Friend, I just wonder if you have anything in your life that would cause you to make the harder decision. That you would identify who is so strongly that you'd be willing to sacrifice your comfort for, even die for. Let's see what Esther does. Let's look at our second and final question this morning. Number two, who identifies with you? We've asked, who do you identify with? And now, who identifies with you? George Bernard Shaw said that life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. I wonder what you think of that idea. Creating yourself, your identity, deciding for yourself who you will be and how you will live. It sounds pretty good. It definitely sounds American. At this point in the story, no matter what the Jewish people decide, they're in the Persian kingdom and they're condemned to die. Even more important than who they are identified with, this group of people, would be who could rescue them? Who could save them? And Esther has to make that decision, and she does in verse 15. Look there, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So whatever we might have said about Esther up to this point in the story, about her identity, relaxing in the palace, other people are in danger. Well, we can't say that any longer. Her revealing moment has come and she resolves to act. She's not going to stand by and do nothing. And her action begins with a call to fast. And so Mordecai needs to go and gather all the Jews in Susa, hold a fast. Esther's going to fast with her young women. Fasting is a sign of, of, of dependence, isn't it? On the, on the Lord or contrition in the Bible. Contrition sometimes over sin. You see individuals fasting and you see corporate bodies fasting, um, like the church, for example. Before Paul and Barnabas were sent out as kind of the first missionaries of the church at Antioch, the church is said to have been fasting and worshiping, Acts 13, verse 2. And I think fasting remains a vital and important spiritual discipline today. That Jesus expects us to practice. So Matthew 9, 15, they asked Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting like everyone else? And Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus gave instructions on fasting in Matthew 6 that begin with when you fast. And usually in the Bible, fasting and prayer go together. They don't seem to go together here in Esther. Commentators disagree about why or why not. I tend to think it's an implied action. It it means prayer is implied with fasting. It's not mentioned in the fasting of Joel 2 either. But I don't think this means that the people aren't praying. 
when they're rending their hearts before God. And I don't think Esther merely wants the solidarity of her people to go without food and drink for three days. I think she also wants their prayers. Like when someone, you go through something and someone says, well, I'm gonna be thinking about you on that day. Man, I appreciate you thinking about me, but could you also pray? Could you also pray for me? And I think that's what Esther is, is doing. We shouldn't view fasting as some kind of like magical action that, that produces certain results, like a vending machine. We put it in and we get a result out from God. It, we ought to think of it as a means to be more aware of our neediness before God. When our stomachs growl, we're reminded that we need God and, and we need to, to pray. And fasting is an incredible aid in our humility and dependence on him. Sometimes we don't do that. We don't pray like that because we, we ourselves can be isolated. We ourselves can be really comfortable and away from the problems of the world that are things that are happening right now in the 1040 window. Things that are happening right now across the world or the, the pain that even many are going through in our own midst. And as you know, we, we are coming up on a big decision as a congregation over the next month or so. And we're, we're, we're considering a potential merger with another congregation. And you just need to know lots of work and preparation has gone into that. Lots of meetings and discussion and creation of documents. But more than all of that, I would say the most important fundamental thing that we would ask is that God would be at work. And if he's not, we don't want to be a part of it. And so I would ask you, and I am asking you, members of Baptist Church of the Redeemer, to take the month of February and commit to pray, particularly for the the possibility of this merger, and accompany that prayer with fasting. Accompany your prayer with fasting as you're able. So I'm not going to prescribe to you what that's going to look like, but I would just encourage you, perhaps take a day in the week, and and for that meal that you're going to miss that day or that whole day, whatever you decide to do, Utilize that time for prayer. Utilize that time to pray for unity in our church, for for God's direction, for God's wisdom, for God's grace in which we need, and ultimately for God to be glorified. It's not a vending machine. It's 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 a reminder to us that we need God. And apart from him, we can do nothing. And so I want to encourage you to to pray and to fast through the month of February. And amidst the prayers and fasting that we see here in Esther 4, there's also action, isn't there? Esther agrees to take the plunge. She agrees to do this, to show up unannounced before the king, risk her life for her people. And I just love that, look, there's no special vision from God, no dream, no visit from an angel. It's like you would say, well, if I knew for sure this was God's will, I would do it. But that doesn't happen here. And she knows the odds are not in her favor. But she can still say, if I perish, I perish. I think this is a great example of of, of boldness. The essence, I think, of the right kind of attitude as it relates to boldness, as it relates to risk-taking in our relationship to God. So, So not putting my action on a result. So I'll do this only if God does this. That's not what she does, is it? She doesn't make her obedience dependent on the result. No, either way, she will glorify God. If I perish, I will perish. If I die, I glorify God because I gave my life for him, for his glory and for my people. He's worth that. He's worth giving my whole life away. And if I don't, and he, he rescues the people, he gets glory for rescuing his people. 
But either way, my boldness is rooted in his glory, in him, my satisfaction in him. And that produces a risk-taking, faith-filled kind of obedience that we want to pray that would characterize our own lives. Ultimately, Esther is a mediator here between the king and the people. She is the go-between who's going to risk everything to plead their cause. Because she identifies herself with the people, they can be saved, perhaps through her actions. But how central is this to the gospel? How central is this theme and picture to the good news? Esther is a type of or picture of the great mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Friends, you need to understand no one appears before the holy God of the universe uninvited. No one comes before God and salters in and is going to be okay in their sin before a holy, righteous God. Not because he's busy, not because he's an egomaniac. Because of our sin and his great holiness. We cannot stand before God's perfection and sheer righteousness. Think about Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6. We would be undone. And unlike Ahasuerus, God will not just simply bend the rules because he's having a good day and lift a scepter and excuse our sin. No, he is actually committed to his righteousness. And that is unchanging. And so we deserve nothing but judgment for our sin. As Ezekiel says, the soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. And so like the people of Israel needed Esther, we need a mediator, we need a savior, and God himself has provided that for us in Jesus. He is fully God and he is fully man. Therefore, the only one who could stand between a holy God and sinful mankind and make peace. Jesus did that by laying down his life in our place. And it wasn't a 50-50 proposition for him. Well, if I perish, I perish. No, it was the plan all along to perish, to die, to give himself for a sinful people. He had to die. There was no other way. He had to take the full wrath of God on himself, the full torment of hell for his people. Jesus took and friends, he did that on the cross. He died on the cross, absorbed God's wrath. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave, triumphant over sin and death forever. And that if you would turn from your sins, and you would put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you would not only identify yourselves with him, but know that he identifies himself with you. And when you stand before God in judgment, God will lift his scepter of mercy because of Jesus. He's paid our debt. We're righteous because of him. We're forgiven because of him. And friend, I just pray that you would trust Jesus and repent of your sins and be saved. And if you're a Christian, rejoice in the grace that you have in Christ. Rejoice that you don't have to be identified with your sin any longer. And that you don't have to create your identity. You're given a new identity. You're made a new creature in Christ because of the gospel. The old has passed away and the new has come. So even more important than who you identify with, the answer is the answer to the question, who identifies with you? I mean, I pray it would be Jesus Christ. This is what gives hope to people who have similar stories to the apostle Peter. Peter failed during his identity crisis. He wept bitterly over his sin. But after Jesus rose, Jesus sought out Peter. Not to rebuke him, but to restore him. 
Jesus died to pay for his sins. And because Jesus identified with Peter, Peter was secure. His sin was forgiven. He could be totally restored. Go read John chapter 21 this afternoon and just be encouraged at the grace of God in Christ and know that you can be restored too. This is the power of the gospel. Friends, why would we treasure anything more than we would treasure this? Why would we ever identify with any other king? What better way to spend our lives and even give our lives away than to risk them for King Jesus? Esther's story of identity is going to continue, Lord willing, into next week. Friend, I pray that yours would be resolved even this morning. That you would rend your heart, not your garments, not some outward expression, not some outward sign, but from the inside out, repent of your sins and return to your great God, the God of mercy and grace. His purposes are great. His ways are high and they center around the great treasure of the universe, Jesus Christ. Who knows, perhaps you are here this morning, not by chance, but by God's purpose to hear and respond to the good news. To just settle forever your answer to those questions. Who will I identify with? And who will identify with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would all have those settled convictions in our heart this morning. That we know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being our great mediator. Thank you that we do not have to stand before a holy God apart from the covering of your righteousness. Oh Lord, help us to live each day in that reality that we've been saved, we've been made pure, that we've been made acceptable, justified before God. Oh Lord, and I pray that that would, that would lead to a life of faithfulness and holiness Lord, one that, that calls other to this, others to the same joy and hope. Lord, help us to be a church that just um, puts forth this, this reality in the way that we live, in the way that we worship, the way that we love one another. Lord, if there's any that are drifting away, Lord, bring them back. Lord, we pray that the thing that connects us most would be this good news. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.